It is a warm starry night in Texas. Except for a few crickets chirping and the wind rustling the leaves, the night is dead silent. This small town's population is all in their bed, not yet aware that this one-horse town will soon be thrown into the UFO frontier with an ear-deafening crash. Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine the TV show Ancient Aliens. Do their claims hold water to an archaeologist or are there better explanations out there? I'm your host Frederick and this is episode 21 and before we start today I just want to highlight that we have a little merch store now. So if you want some t-shirts, cups, I don't know, we offer that at the website and it's quite interesting design we have um, polio as i want to call it from ancient humans on some t-shirts you have the logo of course and it's a good way to throw a few bucks towards the show if you would like to anyway this week we're going to watch and break down episode one from season four called aliens in the old west this was supposed to be a quick and easy episode or It was at least what I thought it would be. But this turned out to be quite far from the truth. The amount of research necessary took quite some time and ended up more profound than I anticipated. To make it more digestible, I have split this episode up in two. So we will cover only two segments this week. But it will be quite a deep dive. We're going to start with the UFO crash in Aurora, Texas. And from there, we will move over to the Serpent Mound. We will cover the latest research on the side and have a quick tour of the New Age movement's history and influence over it. We will also look into plastic shamanism and how it also influenced the site. Remember that you can find sources, resources and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. There you will also find contact info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. And if you like the podcast, I would really appreciate if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews that I heard so much about. Well, enough of me jammering. Let's travel back to the wild, wild west and see what they got for us this time. Right at the beginning, the typical ideas about what the Wild West entail are taken up by the show. The speaker talks about covered wagons heading out, cowboys riding lazily into town, drinking in the saloons, and, of course, Indian wearing war paint. We're thieves in a world that don't want us no more. But then they add that this is an embellished version on how things really were back then. And this is quite true. The ideas of the Old West come basically from time novels and from old Hollywood movies. And for being such a show that this is, it's a quite refreshing addition to what we usually see, to be honest. But don't worry, this is a brief foray into reality that quickly disappear when they start covering what is presented to us in this episode, of course. So after the intro, we see what first looks like a reenactment, but it's surprisingly high quality. 
But when you start to see Harrison Ford and Daniel Craig, you realize that this must be a product placement. And this is a preview from the 2011 movie Cowboys and Aliens. But this show basically tries to sell the film and explain a bit about the plot. And this is something we haven't really seen in the past and it's new for the show. At least this level of product placement. We have previously seen Van Daniken's books, but um, now we're into Hollywood movies. I've not seen this movie and it might be an excellent bonus episode to break down in the future. But then the narrator admits that the film and the comic book it's based on are made up. But then he adds that some parts could have been inspired by actual events. Yeehaw! So we open in Aurora, Texas and the name sounded quite familiar to me from the start. And when the show started to discuss the cemetery, I knew what it would be all about. So we going to talk about the alien who is said to have been buried here in Texas in the 1800s. We meet Jim Mars, who I've seen previously, walking in a cemetery and he says, The Aurora Cemetery was founded in 1861, right at the start of the war between states. Texas State Historical Commission has a marker here that states the cemetery is well known because of a legend that a spaceship crashed nearby in 1897 and the pilot killed in the crash is buried here. The crash occurs on 50 years before the Roswell incident and after in Mars we meet a new face with Jeff Danilek and he tells the story of this long ago crash together with Jim Mars. On the screen we see newspaper clippings as evidence of what happens back then and if you're unfamiliar with the story the show at least presents it as follows. In the early morning of the 17th of April, 1897, a UFO reportedly crashed into the wings of Judge Proctor Windmill and burst into flames. The explosion could be heard far and wide. It threw the ground into a violent, shaking motion that could be felt even in the farthest corner of this small town. The local reporter arrived on the scene reported that a large debris field and charred remains of an extraterrestrial being. The traveler was given a crystal burial at the town cemetery. The supposed remains from the other planet still lie under the bent branch of an old tree. Jim Mars adds this little gem to make sure that we the viewers should agree that it must have been a UFO. In 1897, this was six years before the Wright brothers actually made heavier-than-aircraft work. So uh, this is why I consider the Aurora spaceship crash the smoking gun of the UFO controversy because this occurred six years before there was anything man-made in the air. And let's listen carefully to what Jim Morris is telling us here. Firstly, he says that this was six years before heavier-than-air flights. And that's wrong, or it's true that the Wright brothers successfully launched the first engine power airplane six years later or so. It's also true that the aircraft the Wright brothers used is one of the heavier than air airplanes. However, this aircraft type includes rockets, airplanes, helicopters, and gliders. And Sir George Cayley is considered the inventor of aerodynamics and 
created the first man-carrying ladder in 1850s. And I'd grant Jim is that there probably weren't many gliders in Texans at the time. But other aircraft, such as maybe balloons, now they are not heavier than an aircraft. But again, it's just slight difference because he omits the lighter than air flights that basically use anything such as gas to get lift or hot air in cases <laughs> that we see today. So hot air balloons, blimps and hydrogen balloons and other flying machines that float in the air. Man balloon flights have been around since at least 1st of December 1783 when Professor Jakus Charles and uh, the Robber Brothers made the first known man flight. From then on, things continued to evolve. The, even, the <laughs> Union Army even had its own division, the Union Army Balloon Corps, during the Civil War. But during the Civil War, balloons were mainly used for reconnaissance, for quite obvious reasons. <laughs> even Napoleon used balloons during his campaigns. And in July of the same year, the alien crash is said to have occurred the Swede Salomon August André launched his balloon Ernen, or the Eagle, to reach the North Pole. The attempt went horribly wrong and he crashed just two days later after the launch. And it's a quite tragic story, but it all shows that there were many man-made things in the air at the time. Maybe not a common sight, but it's not as if people would run away in fear if a balloon would have appeared in the town. And I know this is fiction, but even in the, from the game Red Dead Redemption 2, part of the story takes place in a hot air balloon. Are you sure about this? Certain, sir. Quite certain. Mrs., let us away. Wish us luck. I've only crashed twice. Now, uh, pull on that rope uh, and hope for the best. Ah! And ballooning was, for some, a hobby during this time, just as it is today. Then it continues with the narrator explaining that it could be evidence, but that some were taken by the law or maybe it was thrown into a well. And it's pretty mixed here. Both, of course, could have happened, and I get the feeling that they only bring this up with the law enforcement to get us to, you know, get associations towards Roswell or Area 51. We won't really pursue the um, law thread anymore. We will quickly learn that the show, and as it seems like most UFO investigators, prefer the well hypothesis. And the Aurora case has been presented as one of the best cases for extraterrestrial visitation. In 1973, Earl Watts and Bill Case of MUFON, or Mutual UFO Network, or now today Midwest UFO Network, led an investigation into it. They interviewed local residents, collected new papers, and even collected scrap metal that they believe come from the crash. It's not specified exactly where this scrap metal was found, but they did test a bit of scrap aluminum. Since then, there have been other investigations, for example, Bill Porterfield and Kevin D. Randall, and we'll come back to what they have to say a bit later. But let's get back to the well and what's in it. 
The Proctor Farm was purchased by a man named Brawley Oates. And we will then spend a little time meeting Oates. Or we don't really meet Oates in person. But Jeff Danilek and Philip Coppens talk about him. We also see a picture of Oates. In the photo we can see quite clearly that he suffers from a severe case of arthritis. As Jeff Danilek describes, Bravely Oates bought the farmland and started to clean out the well on the property. We must assume that this is the same well into which Proctor dumped the debris that day way back in April. Danilek and Coppen speculate that the well must have contained some sort of element, probably a radioactive one, that caused Oates arthritis. And going through the move from files of their investigation, we find that Oates claimed to some reporters that doctors believe that radiation might be behind it. In another article, though, the radiation seems to appear appears to have come from a passerby that listening to the interview. However, investigators conduct several radiation tests, and the radiation was never above a background level in the area. As we Continuing reading the files and the newspaper clipping, we start to notice another story about Oates. We learned that the Oates family lost a very young daughter and both Brawley and his wife developed arthritis. A feel for the family and they seem to have been through quite a lot. And it seems to me that the Oates needed something to blame and this story seems to have become the target. Finding a scapegoat is a quite human reaction, to be honest. Unfortunately, this reaction was hijacked by the UFO crowd. And we again see how they basically take people's emotions and feelings and turn it into something they can sell in their books. So the evidence doesn't support the claim that radiation levels at the farm are higher than average. So the program presents... But the program somehow presents the radiation theory as the only cause. But as we have learned, and even if we read the MUFON files, we we know that this is not the case. And there are several causes for arthritis and also, of course, different versions of the disease. They never specify what type he suffers from. But uh, genetics play a dominant role in how severe arthritis can become. And from what we see in the show, uh, the best guess is that it would be rheumatoid arthritis. And this version can cause severe swelling and deformation, as we see on Brawley Oats in the photo. Luckily, modern treatment can stop this from becoming as severe as we see in the show. Rheumatoid arthritis is mainly caused by genetic traits, but it's been shown that smoking can increase the risk for the disease. Now, I don't know if Brawley smoked or not, but in the 70s, it's a quite high chance, at least for it. Now, I'm not a doctor, and please don't take (laughs) medical advice from any podcast, but I think it's clear that it's not aliens and it's not radiation that caused this. But Philip Coppen concludes this segment by telling us that the Oates descendant filled the well. And the show leaves Oates here and I I don't think we have much to add here either. 
The narrator explained the Roswell incident has reignited interest in this forgotten alien crash. But apparently not enough because no one really started looking into it until the 1970s, which is a bit after the Roswell incident. We then get to meet John Whalen, who may be familiar to comic fans among us and is the author of The Big Book of the Weird Wild West, published by DC Comics. But Whalen tells us that he and other researchers wanted to exhume the body, but the local cemetery board didn't want that. So they turn it all down. But even if some say the grave's location is known, that could be very wrong. Digging up a grave in a cemetery where people are still mourning could, for quite obvious reason, upset local residents. After this, we get a following quote from Marshall Trimble. Uh, my first question is, why not? What's it going to hurt? As a historian, it makes me suspicious when somebody's trying to hide something from you or tells you you can't, you can't do something. And I just have to say that Marshall Trimble wears a giant cowboy hat and is a country single. He's also the official state historian of Arizona. But I think he should know better than that. There are several laws governing exhumation and you can't just do it for fun and games. Most of these laws include that the gravesite needs to be known because you don't want to accidentally dig up someone else. There are other things, but according to the current US law, the grave's location is deemed as unknown, therefore it can't qualify for an exhumation, basically. But again, there's of course other reasons why you shouldn't just go around and start digging up a graveyard because some alien people think there's an alien there. We're now going to meet Jim Moore's on-site at Aurora Cemetery. And he tells us that he's one of the few people who know the original location of the gravesite. That because he was there. And the program put up a few pictures of what appears to be a quite small flat sandstone that's supposed to be the grave marker. But this was removed under mysterious circumstances. UFO researchers Kevin D. Randall spent a lot of time in Aurora back in 1970, even though Jim Mars was there a bit late. I think that's 76, if I'm not mistaken at the moment. But Kevin D. Randall heard that the headstone was a larger stone that was supposed to have an airship on it. However, when he visited the cemetery, he could not find such a stone. He didn't see the small stone we see in the picture, and it suggested that it was probably added after his visits. But Jim Morris continues. Now, back in 1973, Bill Case was the aviation writer for the Dallas Times-Herald. I was working for the Star-Telegram. We met up here. He had a metal detector, and we found three readings of metal in the grave. A couple of months after the headstone went missing, Bill invited me to meet him up here. We went over the grave and there was no readings in the grave. He showed me three little holes that had been drilled in the grave. Someone extracted the middle out of the grave. Now, a decent metal detector can find coin-sized objects of a depth of roughly 45 centimeters or 18 inches under good conditions 
And 45 centimeters is pretty far above the usual depth depth of a grave. You know, 6 feet versus 18 inches. There's a bit of a height difference there, but some detector can go deeper, but they are pretty expensive even today. And we should perhaps remember that the price of the cheapest Coinmaster, who is a very popular brand of uh, metal detectors, in 1971 was about $169. Taking account of inf- inflations and all of that, we would today pay roughly 1236 for this. So it was quite a lot of money back then and <laughs> even today to some extent. I dubbed what Jim Mars said really took place here and if it did, it would have taken something bigger than boreholes to extract it. Marsh claims that scientists have found evidence using ground-penetrating radar that there in fact was a child-sized grave right where he tells it is. But the issue here is that the GPR doesn't usually show what's been somewhere. Sure, you might see disturbance, but it could basically be anything in the end. And the readings or the scientists who performed this isn't really presented by Jimmar. So again, we will skim this over until we see some better evidence for it. So let's go back to that morning in April when it all began. This is where the show leaves us, basically. It does us its hand, it goes to a new place, but we haven't got the whole story yet. Quite the opposite. Take, for example, the article in Dallas Morning News of 19th April, 1897. It reads as follows. About six o'clock in the morning, the early risers of Aurora were astonished at the sudden appearance of the airship, which had been sailing through the country. It was traveling due north and much closer to the ground than ever before. Evidently, some of the machinery was out of order, for it was making a speed of only 10 or 12 miles an hour and gradually setting towards the earth. It sailed directly over the public square and when it reached the northern part of town collided with the tower of Judge Proctor's windmill and went to pieces with a terrific explosion, scattering debris all over several acres of ground, wrecking the windmill and water tank and destroying the Judge flower garden. The pilot of the ship is supposed to have been the only one on board, and while his remains are badly disfigured, enough of the original has been picked up to show that he was not an inhabitant of this world. Mr. T.J. Weems, the United States signal officer at this place and an authority on astronomy, gives it as his opinions that he was an inhabitant of the planet Mars. Papers found on this person, evidently records of his travels, are written in some unknown hieroglyphics and cannot be deciphered. The ship was too badly wrecked to form any conclusion as to its construction or motive power. It was built of an unknown metal, resembling somewhat a mixture of aluminum and silver, and must have weighed several tons. The town is full of people today who are viewing the wreck and gathering specimens for this strange metal from the debris. The pilot's funeral will take place at noon tomorrow. The article was written by S.E. Hayden and 
has a bit of flowery prose in it. But if we start to look into this article, we will find more. Brian Dunning has done an excellent job in his episode 241, The Alien Bird in Texas, tracing down similar tongue-in-cheek articles about air flights. Everything from singing men throwing down temperance track to aerial monster piloted by men from Mars. Or men of New York. Yeah, the same thing. (laughs) But as we mentioned earlier, even if balloons were infrequent, they were known about the population. It would have been something the town gossiped about among each other, but not really great surprise to them. Figures in the article have been tracked down both by Bill Porterfield and Kevin D. Randall. And T.J. Weems, for example, was the town's blacksmith. He admitted to comprehend little to nothing about astronomy. And Mr. Hayden was a businessman in the area trading cutting and seems to have been penning for the local paper. And Proctor was in fact a judge and uh, seems to have had two meals on his property. From the evidence, it seems as if this article was a spoof to lighten up the spirit in the town. Aurora had been stuck by two epidemics and their harvest by different pests. Few people remained at this time in town and those who stayed seems to have done their best to about the situation. Judge Proctor even rewrote the story in a rebuttal towards Hayden that appeared to have the local constable in the fits of Lothar. Maybe the article was an attempt to put Aurora back on the map, an endeavor that did succeed but only some 70 years too late. Perhaps it was a joke between a few friends trying to keep up the town spirit, but from what we have gathered I think we can safely say that there's No alien buried in Aurora, Texas. But let's turn our attention to another state, Ohio. More precisely to Adams County, where some of you may already know what we'll be dealing dealing with there. And we also brought it up in the introduction to this episode. But the show's narrator tells us that settlers were, who were, awarded land grants by George Washington for serving in the Revolutionary War. When reaching the area, they encountered the Serpent Mound for the first time and other mounds in the surrounding countryside. And these were among the first settlers to learn about the Serpent Mound and started to convey this back east. Now, the, the mound is quite marvelous. And they don't really cover it in this episode, but there are more mounds and graves in the area. It's been occupied since at least the Adena culture that lived um, there between 800 BCE to 100 CE. And two of the largest conical mounds in the area have Adena artifacts. So we know that this place has been an important site for over two millennials. We also meet Dr. Brad Lepper, who might stand out a little bit to, well, maybe some of you at least. He is the senior curator of archaeology at the Ohio Historical Society and has had a long career as an archaeologist. He has also published articles with Ken Fader that you should remember from previous episode. He's a quite 
common fear <laughs> in our research. And they wrote a few with a few others uh, articles for Skeptical Inquirer. And Leper is admitting to be a tad ashamed of his appearance here, even to this day. The show contacted the Ohio Society with um, basically false pretenses, so Brad would appear on the show. Of the three-hour interview, the only quote he used was the following one. Serpent Mound was one of the amazing, mysterious mounds found by uh, the first settlers as they came over the Appalachian Mountains. There were thousands of mounds, but Serpent Mound must have been special. And I think we understand what he means by this, and it's not that there's an alien connection, but this is you, so a viewer will feel it might be true, because a professional addresses it in this way. We then get the Nazca connection, which is not really a surprise for this monument. The argument from Childress here is the same as with the Nazca lines. How could you build this without being airborne? But in reality, you only need simple tools like rope, stakes, and maybe someone up in a tree guiding you a bit. But people visit the sites every day and see it's snake-shaped without while walking on the ground. Sure, the mound looks a bit better from above, but I would see that that's more a bonus for us today than the intent from the builders. But let's have a break from the show and break out and talk about the Serpent Mound to give it some context. This ancient site was first described to white settlers and documented by E. Squire and E. Davis in 1846. And it's on their drawing that the restoration we can see today is based upon. And you can see the etching if you go to the show notes on the website. And if you look at the Serpent Mound, you will notice that the tail is coiled. And then the body somewhat straightens, still curving forward as a river. And at the head, it seems as if it's trying to swallow an egg. But there's other depictions from before the restoration was done. And they show the mound a bit different. For example, in 1884, John McLean depicted almost almost the same, but with a frog leaping away from the egg. So we have an additional figure on the monument. You can see the etching on the website. McLean did associate this with a story he heard from the Native Americans in the area. Now, the missing frog might help us date the mound later, but let's see what the alienists have to say at the moment. We have Ross Hamilton leading us on, telling... Serpent Mound had no burials. It's one of those mysterious mounds that, that offered us no clue as to who the builders were. But on the property, there were burial mounds dated from about very early Adena period, nearly 3,000 years ago. Now, he's somewhat correct here. The mound has no burial, but that's not uncommon for effigy mound. For example, the alligator effigy mound in Granville, Ohio, does not contain grave. Just to mention an example, but before you ask, yes, there are more effigy mounds. Not that the show acknowledged this in any way, but there we are. 
As we mentioned before, the area's uh, conical mounds are associated with the Adena culture dating back some 3,000 years ago. Ross Hamilton is correct with that claim and that we are not entirely sure who exactly built the serpent. This has been debated for quite a long time and as we are today, there are two hypotheses that contends with each other. The previous mentioned Adena culture and um, the fourth ancient culture. Both have lived in this space but in very different times in history. Now the area was first excavated by Frederick Putnam who thought it was probably built by an even earlier group of people. From what I read Putnam seems to not have been too impressed by Native American society and he based disclaim more of the racist ideas of the time rather than scientific reasoning or a better word it might be that the science back then and to some extent even still today unfortunately was heavily based on racist theories. The more prevailing idea is that today is that a mound was built by the Adena culture and then the fourth ancient culture repaired the site who had, when then they arrived, fallen into disrepair. One of the main arguments for this theory is a couple of core samples, actually. These were taken during an excavation in 2014 of the mound. Core samples have been used for some time, but have been problematized lately. Danish scientists did publish a paper in 2019 where they could show that data in charcoal obtained by core samples usually adds up to some 3,000 years to the dating. This is due to, to charcoal from the topsoil being picked up when the samples are collected and trickling down, skewing the dates. You can find the paper dating ancient burial mounds in Denmark, revealing problematic ancient charcoal. If you want to read more, this does not mean the samples are contaminated, but there's a possibility, at least. Especially when we compare the datings for two, from 2014 to uh, earlier excavation back in 1991, where they collected charcoal in situ from the mound's base layer. And those were dated to Fort Ancient. Now, the competing theory suggested by Dr. Brad Lepper and others think it's more likely that the serpent mound was in fact built by the fourth ancient culture instead. They base this on the fact that serpents has not really been represented in Adena art, except for maybe on the Adena effigy pipe. So it seems a bit weird that they would build the only effigy mound we know about as a serpent. But the serpent do have a vital place in Fort Ancient and in Mississippian culture. Both of these cultures did interact with each other and are seen as sister culture by scholars today. Now, what do Mississippian have to do with all of this? Well, in Mississippian art, we have three elements that often appear and have special meaning within the culture. We usually see an egg, a frog, and a serpent. And together it's believed that they refer to making of the earth right or a creation story. 
For example, in the picture cave, they have made C14 samples of coal used as pigment in the serpent petroglyphs in the cave. And the specimen obtained puts this serpent from the Mississippian culture in the same periods as the dating from the serpent mound back in 1991. And we shouldn't forget to mention the effigy mound culture that were active between 700 CE and 1100 CE. Another culture that built similar types of mound closer to the fourth ancient culture. Again, I feel, (laughs) I'm not an expert here so don't take my word on it, but others find it quite strange that there would be such a long gap from the first example in Adina culture to the next one that we first see with the Ephedim Mound culture some six, seven hundred years later. You might think that I have not proven anything here and no, I haven't. (laughs) To be honest, even if Leper and others have done a great work the last few years with this theory, we might still need more to get a definite answer. Trying to get better and especially in situ material to date and continue the research but it needs to be done closely with the Native American who claim this site as their heritage. This has slowly started and the Shawnee tribe has been invited back to reclaim what they see as their ancestral monument. We will talk a bit more about this in a moment, but this, as you might hear, is quite exciting current research, and I'm interested to learn where all of this will lead in the future. And this has been a quite exciting research journey to learn more about the site, but let's go back to the show now when we understand the history of it a bit better. And, um, well, what the current discussion is about and why and what they based it on. Now, instead going with this more accurate and more interesting story of the Serpent Mound as we did, the show will start to make things up instead. (laughs) We are taken to a nearby crater with the unfortunate name Serpent Mound Impact Crater. And this hole has been known since, well, at least the 1960s, and uh, the crater is some 8 kilometers in diameter. Well, there's nothing really special about this crater that would confuse a researcher, but um, what would ancient aliens be if we did not have some silly claims? We meet Thomas Janssen, who claims that there are magnetic anomalies around the mound. Giorgio Sokolos chimes in claiming that there are places at the ridge where compasses are just spinning and spinning and spinning and then you get dizzy and you need to sit down. But (laughs) what he's describing is a magic trick. If there's a magnetic disturbance, the needle basically just doesn't point north. And there are locations like that across the globe and... Now, I'm not sure if Yori is aware that this is a magic trick or not, but as I've discussed previously about an anomaly I encountered where a complex didn't work in excavation, the, that time it turned out to be a mother load of iron slag from a smith causing this, but 
It seems like if you want to impress Giorgio at his live show, you just need to learn how to palm a magnet and then circle it behind the compass, making it spin. Okay, so spinning compasses, it's quite silly, but uh, they are not racist enough. Let's add some of that. Thomas Janssen will help us. The myth has it that the Native Americans, when they came here, could see birds similar to passenger pigeons or homing pigeons circling by the millions because within the skull of the pigeon is a little piece of hematite or magnetite, and that's how they navigate. And they couldn't figure out where north was. Can you imagine millions of birds flying in a circle five miles wide? So this myth seems to be invented by Thomas Jonsson for reasons known only to him. Jonsson is a former factory worker, trilobite enthusiast, rock shop owner and a new age peddler. But he is not an expert on Serpent Mound, Native Americans or biology as it seems. He is credited as the House of Fakos Museum's owner in the show, but this is basically a shop that sells different rocks and has a few trilobites on display. The, bur- the claims about the birds themselves are plain silly. Sure, some birds have a magnetic sense called magnetoreception, but they rely on landmarks and routes they have learned for the most of the time. But this claim is dangerous because he invents a myth and then credits them to Native American to sell his New Age humbug. We'll discuss this a bit more later, so let's continue for now. And now the show will tell us why the site was or are is essential to aliens, because they haven't really brought this up until now. So the reason we learn is that this site is so vital to the aliens is because the meteorite that crashed here deposited iridium, iron and uranium here. That itself is true. Meteorites can deposit minerals on impact if they are present. And iridium is a common meteorite mineral. So the aliens basically came here to mine iridium from this crater. As you do, I guess. I mean, it's not like there's other planets that have more meteoritic impacts and therefore... Probably a higher yield and return if you would mind those instead, but maybe I just overthink things. <laughs> the show does claim that there's evidence though. There are caves within this crater, the size of a medium-sized village basically. <laughs> From the example presented in the episode, it seems to be a natural cave, but Ross Hamilton, who shows us this cave somewhere unspecified in the area is confident it is something more. We don't learn how he knows this is an alien mine and not a cavern. Instead, he continues his trend of making up Native American myth. The Serpent Mound is a marker for space according to the Shawnee Indians. They're convinced that space travelers are using Serpent Mound as a marker. No. How do I know that Ross Hamilton made this up? Well, because the Shawnee has told this themselves. The cultural appropriation of Native American costume, sites and religion is so widespread that it actually have a word among activists. Plastic shamanism. These shamans 
and ideas started to pop up for real when white middle-aged suburban baby boomers started to look for something more spiritual. And this was basically when the New Age movement was born. It was new, not due to some spiritual awakening. No, the main goal of the New Age movement is consumerism. They want to sell you courses, stones, healing, and of course a sense of spirituality. But that one comes with a price tag. Why the religion of indigenous people in North America have been so heavily appropriated is a critical question to ask. And I think uh, Raina Green described this quite well in the article The Tribe Called Wannabe. And I love that <laughs> wordplay on a scientific title. As Raina Green describes, Euro-Americans and Europeans have liked to play Indian, as you call it, for quite some time. And there's been a long tradition of playing Indian in a lot of different settings. For example, in Wild West shows. And later in the 1800s, they were incorporated into medicine shows as healers to basically sell snake oil. To, to the viewers and even the shakers picked up some ideas of um, Native American spirits and it grew somewhat from there so the appropriation of Native American spirit, spirituality have been ongoing for quite some time but it was not until really after World War II a few plastic shaman started to pop up now the plastic shamans didn't get big though until the new age movement in the 1970s but the idea shared is built on cherry picking of tradition and the exploitation of indigenous people's practices and the main argument why new age is not a religion per se is that they don't really have a creed in new age movement there's no memberships there's no tenants and in studies shown it's just a loosely tied group of white middle-aged people who pay to go to convention and buying books, they're buying CDs, they buy to be able to participate in classes led primarily by other white people playing the role of shaman. Usually these shamans take on an invented backstory, how they were taken in by Native American shamans and from then we're giving the spiritual gifts and the deep knowledge of the tribe, basically. The created teacher is for some reason often blind. We see this trait in, for example, New York bestsellers Lynn Andrews' backstory. She claimed that two Cree Indian medicine women called Agnes Whistling Elk and Ruby Plenty Chief took her in and teached her about the ancient Native American spirituality. And according to Andrews, Ruby Plenty Sheaves is supposed to be blind, just as Mary Summerain's mentor, and uh, the list can just grow longer from here. The expropriation of other cultures have been a long-time issue in history's programming, and they continue this tradition to this day. We have seen it much in the previous episode and we will see more of it going forward. I've linked a few papers on the cultural appropriation of Native American tradition 
for example, from Raina Green and the Plastic Shamans and AstroTurf Sundances by Lisa Aldred. Just to mention some example. Again, this episode you want to hit the reading list. But let's return to Ross Hamilton's claim about the Shawnee tribe who have been officially invited back to the Serpent Mound as the rightful descendants of it. It's a small step, but it's something at least in the right direction. It happened quite recently. Ben Barnes and Glenna Wallace from the Shawnee tribe and Eastern Shawnee tribe spend Spent some time last year during the summer equinox giving lectures about the site and its importance to the tribe members. But why the Soaring Eagle Retreat is allowed to have their summer solstice event on the site is beyond me. So Soaring Eagle Retreat is technically not something that is on the site. They are located just on the border to it but have a lot of their events on and around the mound. And this, this is a convention hall or a hotel, basically, that specializes in New Age workshops and events. If you haven't guessed it already. <laughs> in an article, it's described that Barnes & Wallace's speech during the summer equinox was interrupted by a few New Agers demanding the chiefs to participate in their playing Indian, or what we should call it. The individuals then complained that the Shawnee members were rude due to not accepting their pipe smoking offer. And it's beyond me, it's beyond my understanding how people, adult people, can be so disconnected from reality that they think that Native American would actively participate in their culture appropriation I don't know sometimes you just lose a little bit of hope in humanity the tiny bit okay but we're still not done with Serpent Mound and Ross Hamilton who does not appear in any other episode luckily for some reason gets a lot of airtime and he says the serpent itself was aligned to a constellation that had its apex at the height of the night sky 5,000 years ago the constellation Draconis was used to align the Great Pyramid. And I think Ross Hamilton is trying to allude to the fact that the mound is much older or that the builder got the information from an extraterrestrial source. The Serpent Mound does not align with Draconis since the constellation is from Greece and only exists in Greek mythology. I thought you might, though I have no drachmi to give, only knowledge. Which one should prefer, for it is perpetual, not transitory. To give Rosen out, we can mention that Thuban, a star within the constellation, was the northern pole star until roughly 3000 BCE. And due to the Earth rotation, the pole star actually changed between a few stars. But no, besides maybe then the Northern Pole Star, there's no relation between the Draconis constellation and the Serpent Mound. And we have even more Ross coming up here. We have him also on site, walking at an outcropping, stating that it's pure limestone or dolomite. 
And here I got some help from Sharon Hill from the Spookyology podcast. And she pulled out some info about the area. And, and according to the Ohio Geological Interactive Map, the site should be Dolomite. But it's a, it maybe not matter too much to the show claims. But um, Hamilton also claimed that the quality is better than the limestone used in the Great Pyramid of Giza. But this claim is quite silly and as Sharon told me, being that this kind of rock is extremely common and the claim that the rock is special or has any interesting property doesn't amount to anything. Ross then stands beside a stone on the ground looking at it. And you can see when you see it on the screen that it has some resemblance to a pillar if you like, or a large rectangle. But he claims that this stone has excellent conductive powers and must have been placed in the serpent at one point. Why it was in the serpent? Well, it was to attract lightning to generate electrical power for the spaceships. But we do not learn how far this stone is from the site or how he came to know this but sure dolomite and limestone can technically be conductive but it's not really due to the stone but it's more that it's probably rotten or porous leading to water entering the rock and with the water is how the electricity travel through the stone and we had heard similar electricity generated claims in the past, most notably about with the pyramids, of course. Though again, it's not the stone itself that's conductive, it's the water in it. And we also excavate the site and nothing within the mound shows anything that could be used to store electricity. Ross Hamilton, as we are familiar with by now in with many other quote-unquote experts on the show has no credential in any relevant area what that he speak of other than a few self-published books there's really nothing much about him really this shows when you listen to him and read what he has written it's more fantasy than fact and he closed out the segment about the mound with the following quote when the lightning lamps were eliminated Native cultures fell into darkness again at about 5,000 years ago. But we know that if their prophecies hold true, the Serpent Mound will be reactivated again one day. And when that reactivation occurs, that'll be the beginning of the restoral of the Earth. Okay, let's get back to Barnes and Wallace. Both have worked hard to educate people on the actual history of the mound, to wash away the New Age Alien claims Barnes and Wallace are working with scientists and local authorities to provide a good understanding of the site. Not that they should have to do this, but it's nice of them to do that. I would like to let Ben Barn close out our segment of the Serpent Mount with a quote from the Solar Solstice presentation in 2021. Unfortunately, the Serpent Mound has become the epicenter of efforts to appropriate sacred American Indian sites. 
and replaced the indigenous story with all sorts of fantastic, absurd stories. Let's be absolutely clear. At the heart of these myths and fantastic stories is the racist notion that American Indians were too stupid to have built something so wonderful. And this is where we're going to leave off for this week. I feel it's more appropriate to have Ben Barnes close out the segment than Ross Hamilton. But we will return to the Old West next time and finish this. Then we will learn about Mormon ties to ancient aliens. Could it be that the angel Moroni who spoke with Joseph Smith was an extraterrestrial being? Is Paul Bunyan related to anything in the following episode? Tune in and find out. Remember to leave a positive review anywhere you can, such as iTunes, Spotify or to your friend at the trench. I would also recommend you to visit diggingupancientaliens.com to find some more info about me and the podcast. You can also find me on most social media sites and if you have comments, corrections, suggestions or you just want to write an email in all caps, you find my contact info on the website. You will also find all the sources, resources used to create this podcast on the website. Again, you will also find further reading suggestions if you want to learn more about the subjects we bring up this week. Definitely check it out. And our outro is by the band called Tralskruv, who sings their song Tin Foil Hat. Links can be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep showing that science. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. 